Well, I want to start out with some good news. If you're new to us, uh, we took up an offering for our missionaries that serve uh, all over the world to help with Christmas. I've talked to plenty of our missionaries that over the years said it's been a great blessing to them when they get that note from uh, First Christian Church. Uh, We don't have a final total. Money's still coming in. In fact, today's the last day you can go ahead and contribute online. But currently, that stands at $16,591. So let's celebrate that. I listened to a well-known preacher who talked about his habit of going away to a small uh, town uh, once a year. And there was just a small church within that town where he would worship. And uh, he he said, as he noticed, in in the time that he went, they had had over four or eight preachers in the time span of the years that he'd been attending, but only one piano player. Uh, That piano player had stayed through the whole time. He said... He went one year where they had a new minister, and he said, as he listened to the sermon, unfortunately, it was both dry and long. He said he could have handled one or the other, but both of them together, he was really struggling to kind of stay along. And then he said something unexpected happened. The one piano player who'd been there the whole time, uh, as the preacher went over quite a bit, made her way to the piano and began to play softly the piano. Uh, Evidently kind of a hint for the, the minister. It wasn't cued. When he didn't follow that hint, he said she actually went and said, now everybody sing with me uh, in order to bring the service to an end. Um, afterwards, she came up to him and recognized him. And, and she says, well, don't you preach at that big church, you know, not too far from here? And he said, yes, I do. She goes, well, I would love to come to your church. And he said, just don't do it while I'm preaching. Now, that story illustrates kind of what we're talking about in this series from two points. One, to be a person of influence, you don't have to be the primary leader. Uh, I'm sure in, in her service there during the time that she was there the entire time, she, she obviously had become a person of influence. You don't have to have the title to be an influential person. Uh, but the second truth, and by the way, Damien, if, you're, if you've made it back here, you know, don't get any ideas. He's our piano player this morning. Because the second lesson is it matters how you influence. There's a right way to do it. And so in the, our, our study of Titus, we want to address both. I want, we want to reinforce every week you can make a difference. Your life can be influential. But at the same time, it matters how you go about it, how you do it. And so that, that's what we're gathering from the book of Titus. Now, this is our third week. <clears throat> in our first week, we talked about the call to influence, and we're all called to be a person of influence. Now, the roles may be different, but but the call is there for all of us. Last week, Zach talked about some character qualities of a person of influence, and it went through, actually, it, it was given as Titus was selecting elders for the towns there in Crete, and it's a pretty intimidating list. He said, you know, he says in verse 5, the reason I left you there in Crete is to straighten out what's left unfinished and, and appoint elders in every town. And then he goes on to say, an elder must be blameless. And it goes through a, a list of things, some character qualities, you know, not, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to dishonest gain. And, and so when you read that list and you're thinking, I, I need to live up to all those, that it can kind of be overwhelming. But here, I want to piggyback on something Zach said last week about those. He, you know, he pointed out they weren't just a checklist. They just weren't prerequisite. 
In fact, I look at them not so much as, pre, as much as prerequisites, although they are, for a person to influence in that way, they need to have worked on those things. But I, I see it less as a prerequisite before I lead as I do as a standard while I lead. And let me explain why I say that. For example, I may have a temperament that, uh, or let's take, let's take moms. You know, you're, you're, you're thinking, first of all, you might think of yourself as a person of influence. You have kids, you're influencing them, and there's many other ways that you influence too. But your temperament may be laid back. You're not, you're not quick-tempered. Um, you think, man, I, I've got that one down. And then you have three pre- preschool kids running around at the same time. And all of a sudden, you have a temptation to be quick-tempered. It's not just a prerequisite. It's a standard that I need to continually consult because as I influence, there are these are kind of target some of the temptations that come to me as I influence. Your supervisor at work, and again, maybe you're laid back. <clears throat> you're not given to be overbearing, but you you are trying to lead a group of stiff-necked people on your team that don't listen very well. And all of a sudden, there's this temptation to be overbearing, even though that's not temperamentally a temptation for you. And, and the one about dishonest gain, uh, first of all, we usually limit that to think financially, but it could be any thing I seek to get out of being a person of influence. Uh, and, and, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely, and that goes for every level. I have to continually evaluate, am I seeking to get something out that, that wasn't necessarily part of the deal? and being a person of influence. So, so that's one thing. I want you to keep in mind how high those standards are because it comes into the verses we're going to look at here in a minute. Now, it ends with verse 9 that says um, that a, a person of influence should hold firmly to the trustworthy message that has been taught and do two things. Encourage others with sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And, and so we're gonna, we'll come back to that. That's why I want to start with verse 9, even though that's where you ended last week. So uh, I want us to talk about four principles where authority is married to influence. If you become a person of influence, that gives you a, a degree of authority. Maybe not positionally, but you will have authority in other people's lives. So starting with verse 9, let's read the rest of chapter 1 and then go back and look at those four principles. So it's talking about, and this is specifically an elder, but a person of influence, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught so that he can encourage others with sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Because, for there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so they'll be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, Both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their action they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Now, like I said, there's four things that I want to point out about influence, especially as you begin to gain authority. 
And, and the first thing is that it's directive. Now, when I was taking counseling classes many years ago, one of the things they talked about was non-directive counseling. And the idea behind that is you don't seek to give direction to the person. You just, by reflective listening and helping them clarify their thoughts, help them discover where, what their feelings are, what their opinions are. It's called non-directive. And, and that's a tool that you can use in seeking to help one. But if you're going to be a person of influence, if you're going to lead, at some point, you have to give guidance. You have to be directive. And that's what it says in verse 9. In two ways, encourage others with sound doctrine, that's giving direction. Refute those who oppose it, that's giving direction. Now, sound doctrine is the compass. And it's extremely important that you have the right compass. We're going to spend the next two weeks in chapter 2 talking about sound doctrine. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that this morning. Just know that it is dependent on you having the right compass if you're going to give guidance and direction to other people. It's called sound doctrine. We're going to talk about it next week. But it, but it is wise to invest in knowing what sound doctrine is so you can encourage and refute. Now, when it comes to marriage, I read a, a, a one marriage book that said, you know, in, in marriage, you're going to have both of those times when you encourage each other and then when you have to deal with correcting something that's causing friction in your marriage. Uh, and the, but they went on to say it's wise to have five of the encouraging encounters for every one of the corrective encounters. Now, you need both, but, but that's a good ratio. And if you're seeking to be a person of influence in somebody's life, that's probably pretty good counsel. You know, you, before you jump into your desire to correct, say, have I been spending time encouraging? It's to create the context for our relationship. So there needs to be a balance with those. And, and, and to be balanced, you need more of the encouraging than the correcting. So that's the first thing. It's directive. Second is, it, you can be confident when you do this. Now, I have to be honest with you. When I first read this passage that we read this morning, confidence is not what comes to mind. It doesn't instill confidence in me. It scares me when you think about the assignment that Paul is giving Titus here. Now, now think about this. First of all, let's go back to the, what Zach talked about last week. He says, I want you to find men to serve as elders, and, and this is what they need to be like. They need to be blameless. Well, right there makes you take pause. And then, then the things we talked about, can't be overbearing, can't be quick-tempered, not pursuing dishonest gain, goes through that whole list that Zach went through with you. He's saying, that's who you need to find. By the way, let me describe the pool of people from which you'll be finding those men. There are many rebellious people, and they're going to, verse 10, they're going to campaign, campaign against you, and other people are going to listen to them. In fact, this pool of people that you're dealing with, one of their prophets said, they're always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. And if that's not enough, the next phrase says, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Now, think about the assignment that was just put in Titus's lap. I want you to find people who are blameless, live up to this level of character, and here's the pool of people that you have to find them from. W would you feel confident if that, that was laid in your lap? And so here, here was my conclusion, and this is what shifted my perspective. Either the Apostle Paul is out of his mind, or he's supremely confident in the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Which one do you think it is? See, this wasn't Paul's first rodeo. 
He has done this before. He has gone to city after city where people are all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, I don't think this is unique to Crete. He, he knew what people, unredeemed people outside the saving grace of Jesus were like. And in every place, he saw their lives change, transformed, and become people of influence. And we stop to think about it. We can have the same confidence. It's not dependent on my ability. I want to be as good at it as I can. But it's Jesus that transforms people. And so, first of all, I think we need to make that shift to become confident. Because if we're not confident, we're not going to try. Are you that confident in the transforming power of Jesus? So it's like two shoe salesmen I heard about. One of them went to an underdeveloped third world country. And, and he gets there and he looks around and he, and he calls back to home base, to his headquarters, and says, it's hopeless here. Nobody wears shoes. You know, send me a return ticket. The other salesman, different company, calls back to his headquarters and he says, send more shoes. The potential is unlimited. Nobody wears shoes. And, and so we decide how we're going to approach. We, we live in a world where billions of people don't know Jesus. So do we give up? Say, well, they don't. Or, or we say, God, thank you for this opportunity. Send more people. Let, let me give you an example. Again, what helps is Paul had experienced that, and so he can with great confidence tell Titus, you go find, you go help people be transformed to be like this, even though this is where they're starting. And these are all examples from previous congregations. Uh, the, I've changed some of their names just because I didn't have time this week to call everybody and ask their permission. But, but just stories I've seen where an assignment like Titus comes to fruition through Jesus. Teresa um, grew up in the church, but she rebelled as a teenager. And this has been, was years and years ago and, and, and left, went on her own out to California, became part of a cult. She said her mother prayed for her every day for 18 years, and at least during that 18 years, seemingly to no effect. But after 18 years, those prayers were realized, and she came to her senses, and she returned, and she turned herself over completely to Jesus, and she became transformed, and she was an active, influential member of that congregation when we, we were there. Pat was kind of... Uh, but, but it was the prayers of her mother which, that mattered. Now, Pat, I, I've shared this story before. He was a hard-nosed negotiator for one of, a major auto union. He was not a believer. He used all the tactics that he could to be successful, and he was financially in, in getting that done. Uh, his kids were believers and had been trying to point him in that direction. But why would he? He had everything he thought he needed. And, and then he came down with cancer, and God got his attention. And, of course, it's God that does the transforming, but it was his children then who stepped in at that opportune moment and continued to love and to direct their father in the right place. And he came to know Jesus. He surrendered to him, and his life was transformed. And he's one of the most active people in that particular congregation by the time that I got there in, in helping other people come to know Jesus. In that case, it was his kids. Ray and Pam came to my previous church, uh, seeking. Now, unknown to each other and to just about anybody else, she was having an affair. He was going to massage parlors. But, but they, they felt empty. They knew there was something wrong. Their marriage was deteriorating e even without that knowledge. 
And so they came and they listened. And in this case, it wasn't just one person, but a group of people came around them and, and loved them and directed them and pointed them. And they surrendered broken to Jesus. And he transformed their lives. And over the years, they became more and more influential in the lives of people around them as they persevered in the growth and transformation that God calls us to. Steve was uh, an alcoholic. It was um, having an impact on his marriage. Now, his wife was a believer, and she was praying for him and trying to guide him to the right point, but she had to be pretty firm with him. And, and at one point, she, he uh, took a gun, went out to the garage, intending to end his life. But again, it was Jesus who got his attention and made him aware of just how much his wife loved him and... and and seeing her life, the difference that it, Jesus made in her life. And so he put the gun down, and he started to go to church with her. And he surrendered his life to Jesus. And after years of growth, he ultimately became one of the overseers that Titus chapter 1, verse 5 talks about. And served for many years in that position. John actually was an elder when this story that he shared with me started. He shared this to me with me after it already happened. He said there was a point where he came in, maybe he wasn't quite ready, he, he was a hard charger, uh, he, he was doggedly persistent if he had an issue that he wanted to deal with, didn't always do it in the right way. Someone came to him and, and said, it was a friend from the church, said, John, you are getting dangerously close to being a divisive man. And to John's credit, he did some self-evaluation. And, and he took that firm course correction from a friend and he took it to heart and by the time I arrived there he was one of the most influential elders in that eldership see you need, you need to know you can make a difference whether it's you talking to a friend, you praying for your parents, you praying for your children your spouse, people that you know because you can be supremely confident in the transforming power of Jesus so be directive, be ready to offer guidance, be confident in what Jesus can do. The next one we'll spend a little more time on, be discerning. Uh, one, of, one of the helpful things I read as I was, our kids were little, I read a lot of James Dobson and he had a book called Dare to Discipline where here was an insight that, that really helped me. He said, you need to discern what's going, the motive in your children's actions before you respond. He says, sometimes it's, it's um, defiance. In, in which case, you know, I will not, in which you need to respond decisively and promptly. Sometimes, he says, it'll be childish irresponsibility. And it may look similar, but it just, just because they're, they're immature and they've made a bad decision. And, and you need to correct that too, but you correct it differently. For example, childish irresponsibility, you know, defiance is, no, I will not. Childish irresponsibility is they left your tools out in the yard and it rained and they got rusted. Now, that, that's still something that needs to be corrected, but not in the same way that you correct defiance. And, and so you say, you don't do that anymore, but, and you've got to help me fix those tools. We're going to take them. We're going to put oil on them. We're going to, you're going to be part of the solution. You have to accept the consequences of your decision. And, and both of those groups show up in the verses that, that follow from where we're talking about. Verse 10 and 11 talk about there are many rebellious people. That's defiance. And that has to be dealt with firmly and quickly. And that, 
In fact, chapter 3 is when we're going to deal with this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this group this morning. But chapter 3, verse 10 says, Warn a divisive man once, warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You make sure he is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. I mean, it's direct and decisive. And here's one of the main reasons. Because you're doing it to protect the flock. See, that's what verse 11 says. There are many rebellious people. They're ruining whole households by what they're teaching, by what they're saying. You've got to stop it. As a person of influence, it's your responsibility to protect. And so you've got to deal with it head on when it comes to rebellion. And rebellion in what they were teaching and, and misleading. Like I said, we'll come back to that when we get to chapter 3. The other group, though, shifts in verses 12 through 14 to those who were listening to them. Now, these people weren't necessarily intentionally rebellious, but they were being manipulated. They were impressionable, maybe because they were inexperienced, or maybe they were just naive on that specific topic, or in that moment, because they were emotionally compromised. And Paul says you need to correct them too. And that's a group I want us to focus in on this morning, because we'll come back to the other group in the series. He says... That's where, that's where he says, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And then this testimony, therefore rebuke them sharply. Why? So they won't pay attention to, they won't listen to Jewish myths and the commands of those who reject the truth. He says, I don't want them listening to these people up here. We'll take care of these people, but, but we also need to give some correction, a, a firm response to the ones who are listening. Stop listening. And so I'm going to focus our application just, just on that area, okay? Not to people who are out trying to cause trouble or leading people down the wrong road, but who, who we listen to. And, and he says sometimes you just need a direct correction because you're listening to the wrong people. Uh, if you're a parent, part of your role and influencer is to do that with your children. Your children are inexperienced. They're not necessarily trying to be rebellious, they're easily manipulated. I just learned about this past week a, a documentary on Netflix called uh, Social Dilemma. And it's a documentary done by people who helped develop social media. So, so they were on the bandwagon to get it going. But they pulled back how manipulative those platforms are. And, and they've, they've adopted... They don't... They don't use it in their family. They don't let their kids take their phone, which has unfiltered access to everything out there, into their rooms at night. They, 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 they say, stop listening. They, they are direct. They affirm guidelines that they share with their kids. And again, sometimes we, we don't feel confident while everybody else is doing it. And we've, If you're a person of influence in the life of your children, that's an area I'd encourage you to watch the documentaries to give you some background to say stop listening to that. But but you know what? As adults, we're we're not so much better at it than our kids are. Again, it's not we're trying to be rebellious, but we can be manipulated based on where we emotionally at a time at the time, and it happens quite often. Ephesians chapter four verse fourteen, Paul is talking about I think more than just the church at Ephesus, just our natural tendency, when he says, Ephesians 4, 14, 
he's looking towards a time when we'll no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. You don't think there's an ulterior motive behind that? And we need to stop listening. And I'd say to stop listening to the loudest voice in the room. That usually has the biggest impact on us, the one that has the most access to. Man, stop and, and evaluate and discern. We've talked about it quite a, quite a bit. There's, there's hardly any true news outlets in our country anymore. Everybody has an agenda. And then it's all, the agendas are all over the place. At least the ones who, who admit that they have an agenda helps a little bit. But the ones who lie and say they don't, and they're extremely selective in how they talk about the events, stop listening to them. Or at least seek to be balanced. If, for the ones that you know, at least try to listen to something on the other side, even if you don't agree with it, because your goal is truth. Not simply to be right, to prove that your opinion is right. And in doing that, I seek to do that, and that helps me hone my understanding. And even if it doesn't change my ultimate conclusion, it helps me be better in presenting the truth to someone. Don't, don't stay in an echo chamber. Stop listening to the loudest voice in the room. No wonder as a country we're emotionally going back and forth, tossed by the waves from one crisis to another. Stop listening and think and pray before you respond. As a preacher, I said this a couple weeks ago, um, you better spend more time reading the Bible and listening to the Bible than even people talking about the Bible. Christian radio, broadcast, podcasts are all good things, but if you spend more time in those than you do the Bible itself, then, then I, I think I'm given the responsibility to stop doing that. How can you make critical decisions about what people are saying the Bible says if you aren't spending time in the Bible? That needs to be the priority so you can evaluate when you do hear people seeking to give inspirational or explanational efforts. Stay in the Bible. Um, and that even goes for good things because uh, people can go beyond that. Here's one that is a great thing God's given to us. Um, and, and we need to be reminded of it, and that's prophecy. He, God gives us prophecy for a very important primary reason. Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. You better be ready, and you better try to help other people be ready. Help them find and follow Jesus. That's, what, that's the, the why behind the information that he gives us. Now, the problem is when we go beyond that, and unfortunately, controversies often occur in this area because... We go beyond and we, we focus on conjecture or curiosity instead of the message, hey, Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. You better be ready and you better be helping other people get ready. And if someone is, takes you beyond the main point, they distract you from the reason that we've been given it, then stop listening. Now, I'm going to apply it to something going on right now uh, in our congregation, same principle. In our, I mean, we've got an election coming up. And they're all important. This one's definitely polarized. But here's a suggestion. I mean, because here's the... Read the Constitution. You know, I, we have a government of the people, by the people, for the people. I mean, we're, we're, we govern in our democratic republic. 
How many of us have even read the founding document? Read the Constitution. There's seven articles. And, and I'm not say, it's not like the Bible. It's not inspired. It was written by imperfect men. But, but at least they gave us the opportunity to correct their blind spots. And we've done it 27 times. It's called amendments. Read the Constitution. It would raise our collective IQ on all the discussions that are taking place. If, if we go back and start there and stop listening to all the other stuff, at least until you have a foundation by which you can filter it. And we can go on and on of different... If you're a life group leader, you, you, you influence people by telling them to stop listening to gossip when it comes up. And it's really easy to come up because we like juicy morsels. You say, okay, are you a part of the solution? No. Okay, are you one of the people involved? No. Well, then according to Matthew 18, you need to tell the person who was involved, it's up to them to go back to the other person with the purpose of restoration and deal with it privately. If we're not a part of the solution, if we're not one of them involved, then we're, we're not going to talk about it any other than trying to help the people who are involved. So be discerning. And you have the influence to tell people, stop listening to that. Listen to this. Okay, last part, it's pure. Verses 15 and 16. says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him, for they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing any good thing. Now, obviously, we are all corrupted in the sense, Romans 3.23, all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, the, the only thing that makes me pure is the blood of Jesus. And, and, but this is talking about a little bit more than that because I think as believers we can still claim to know God but by our actions deny him. So, so I want to apply this. There's a, all kind of application. I want to apply it specifically to this situation where as a person of influence you are led to correct someone else, to, to rebuke in this case. Make sure it comes from faith. Okay, faith is what purifies us. And so faith goes back to my very motive. Is my motive motivated by my faith? What, why am I correcting someone else? Now, in this case, verse 13, the why is so they'll stop listening to those who are trying to mislead them. And so they'll be sound in the faith. Okay, that motive for correcting someone purifies my conversation with them. Now, if I go simply because I'm frustrated and I've had it, I've had enough and so I'm going to put them in their place, I'm going to retaliate for something they said to me, that corrupts what you're about to do. That lessens your influence and effectiveness in doing it. Make sure that your motive stems from faith, it's pure, it's to help them grow keep from going over a cliff that they're heading for, keep them from leading others astray, keep them from making an impulsive decision in a moment of high emotion. And, and Paul talks about that with Timothy all the time. So how you do it, why you do it is extremely important. It's a heady thing, it's a serious thing for me to say, hey, I need to have a, a firm conversation with you. Make sure your motive 
springs from faith, and it's usually their, their best interest that you go ahead and do that. Now, we've talked about those four principles. I want to wrap it up by coming back to the one I said I want to be a part of every sermon that we do, and, and that is you can make a difference. When, when you take the lessons that we find in Scripture and you apply them in your life, you will be a person of influence. Sometimes, though, you may not see for decades the result of that. Bob Welsh is a Ohio, retired Ohio State trooper, and he, he has put a lot of his recollections down, actually in the form of, of poetry. And I, I, I've listened to him several times when he reflected on Christmas Eve. He said he, he was sitting down on, at Christmas Eve. Now, this is after his wife had already passed away, so he was by himself, and he reflected over his time with her, felt a little bit lonely, reflected over his kids, reflected the times he was away on Christmas Eve because... As a state trooper, he was on duty. And then he began to think about some of the things that happened. He, one Christmas Eve, he said he remembered responding to a DUI accident. He went, and the woman uh, who had been intoxicated had been killed in the accident. And so it was his job to go tell the family. So on Christmas Eve, he comes up to this house, and he knocks on the door. And the door is opened by a cute little girl who, who outgoing, says, Hi, I'm Sue McKay. And he says, Well, can I talk to your daddy? And uh, she said, well, our, our, my daddy left us a long time ago. But my mommy just went out to get some things, and she'll be back pretty soon. In fact, she said, if I'd be quiet and be good, that Santa would bring me a dolly tomorrow for Christmas. Well, Bob Welsh knew that his, uh, he was supposed to call child services at that point when he found that information out. But he said he, he just couldn't do it on Christmas Eve. And so he took her home to his wife, uh, who took care of her. He went out and bought a dolly to give her the next day on Christmas. He kind of watched her circumstance and was glad to see she was adopted by a, a good family. He, he thought about some other things that happened on Christmas Eve. He remembers one time a family being stuck in a ditch on a snowy Christmas Eve and he, he helped them get out so they could go be with their family for Christmas. He remembered going into a restaurant where a homeless man didn't have enough money to pay his bill and he was getting in trouble and so as a state trooper away from his own family he paid for the homeless man's meal. And as, as he reflected, he, he started to say, was it worth it all? You know, I was away from my family more than I wish I had. He's kind of reliving his life when there's a knock on the door and he thought it was a neighbor. And, and I want to read the rest in his words because like I said, it's, it's poetic in the way he describes it. The figure standing in the cold gives me a sudden fright, a trooper, with a solemn look, dear God, who died tonight? I'm flashing back to my gone years when I stood on the porch to bring them news and it was never good. Is this how life gets back at me for some misery I've induced or pain that I may have caused some other folks and they have now come home to roost? But looking in the trooper's eyes, my mind was in a whirl. I see a pleasant countenance and the trooper is a girl. She smiled and reached to shake my hand and silence wasn't broke until a tear rolled down her cheek and then she softly spoke. I'm sure you don't remember me, but I thought I'd stop and say God bless you on this Christmas Eve. I'm Trooper Sue McKay. You can make a difference. Let's bow in prayer. God, thank you for our, our time together. Thank you for the wisdom of Paul's words, as inspired by you, to Titus, as he seeks to be a person of influence. 
God, may we take them to heart. We look forward to those times when we can encourage others with sound doctrine. It gives us a warm feeling and it feels good. It's a little bit harder when we have to be firm with someone. We need to purify our motives and make sure we're doing it for the right reason. But God, when we do, we can, we can change the course of a life by pointing them to the transforming power of Jesus. So God, I pray you open our eyes this week to those opportunities, whether it's to encourage or whether it's to rebuke, to refute, that we do it in love and that we are sensitive to the opportunities you'll give us today, that you'll give us this week. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.